So we need to start this series in the beginning with Adam and Eve. Few biblical stories have taken greater hold of the Christian imagination than that of Adam and Eve. From our earliest ages, we've been taught how the Bible's first couple, as I like to call them, were created and lived in harmony in the Garden of Eden. And ultimately, were led astray by a crafty snake and a tempting piece of fruit. In theological discourse, the story in Adam and Eve have fueled doctrines having to do with original sin, gender relations, and ultimately the incarnation. These stories have also had a deep root in popular culture. The expulsion of Adam and Eve from the garden uh, has inspired works of literature, not least of which is John Steinbeck's 1952, East of Eden. And countless artists, from Michelangelo to Titian, have attempted to capture scenes of Genesis 2 and 3 in visual tableaus. This picture here is from Louis Cronach, a 16th century German artist who was actually good friends with, with Martin Luther. But despite our religious and cultural familiarity with the story of Adam and Eve, how much do we really know about these ancient figures? Do our memories of the story match what's actually contained in the text, or are there details there that we have long since forgotten? Well, to help get us going on this and back by popular demand are some quizzes. Now, these quizzes are not graded, as you know. They're here just warm-up exercises. Uh, as Sarah Smith knows, I don't give tests or quizzes in my work at Columbia Theological Seminary, but we only have, on occasion, celebrations of learning. So if you have some text text test anxieties, you might consider this a celebration of the learning that you already have about Adam and Eve prior to even doing this lesson. And if you pass all of these perfectly, we'll just go and have coffee, and we'll just end early. So first question on our quiz, outside of Genesis 2 and 3, how many times is Adam mentioned in the Old Testament? Now that would be an impossibly hard question to ask, so let me give you some options. Six, 22, 77, or 121? What are some guesses here? What do you all think of those four options? Ah, six. Any, any uh, disagreements? 77. Well, this is pretty good. There was a consensus on six. I thought this would be more difficult, but six, in fact, it is. So despite the prominence of Adam in later Christian theological discourse, Adam is basically not mentioned after Genesis 2 and 3. Uh, in fact, only six times, as the answer says, and none of these provide any further detail uh, other than to name his sons and his age at death. Now, as a bonus question, if you got that one wrong, how many times is Eve mentioned outside of Genesis 2 and 3? Once. And that's in Genesis 4.1. So they quickly get rid of Eve and move on in the story. So, so these figures, all this is just to say that these figures have become a bigger piece of our theological imagination than they really were in the Old Testament. So a curious observation. Now, question two. There's four of these. What does Adam initially call his wife? Remember, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the woman, Eve, is created out of the side of Adam, and, uh, and, and Eve, or Adam names her something. What does Adam name her? Eve? Any other answers? Sarah? Sally? Jane? Anybody? What is it? Helpmate, you're all close. So I was trying to, I, I tried to use deception as a pedagogical tool, and that deception was trying to lead you to say Eve, but that in fact is not what Adam initially calls the woman. He calls her woman. In Genesis 2:23, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and this one shall be called woman, 
for out of man this one was taken. Now here in the Hebrew, there's a delightful play on words because what Adam says is, out, uh, she, uh, she shall be called woman, isha, here, for out of, uh, I don't know if the pointer works there, for out of, the, out of man, ish, this one was taken. So from the ish was the isha. Uh, so there's this play on words that kind of accentuates the connectedness of Adam and Eve uh, through their names. Now, third, speaking of Eve, this one's a little bit harder. We're getting a little bit more difficult as we move on. What does the name Eve mean? The Bible actually tells us this answer in a verse near the end of uh, the chapter. What does Eve mean? The day before? before? (laughs) That is a fantastic answer that I never thought of. (laughs) Any other answers? Helper, perhaps, we'll look at, it's not, that's not the right answer, but helper language is important to this text, and we'll take a look at it in just a moment. Let me give you, oh, I forgot, you had options. Oh, sorry, 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 I knew that I tried to make that easier. So there's four options, actually, mother of all the living, life, serpent, and all of the above. I obviously didn't time my slides right here. The answer is actually all of the above. Now, this is quite curious, especially that last one, serpent. Um, here's how it works. In Hebrew... Eve's name is Chava. Now, in Genesis 3.20, we get the most obvious answer. She was the mother of all the living. That's the explanation for why she gets to be named Eve. She's the mother of all the living. And that kind of makes sense because there's a word for living in Hebrew that's Chaya. So Eve, Chava, all the living, Chaya. So you can hear that play on words that might be, might be at work. But in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament in the, same, the very same verse, in Genesis 3.20, it says, The man named his wife Zoe. And if anyone you have daughters or you yourselves are named Zoe, you know what that means. It means life. And so the Greek has kind of interpreted this phrase even further for us. But here's the oddest connection. In Aramaic, which would have been spoken about the time of Jesus, the word havya means serpent. So some have speculated whether Eve's name, Chava, had anything to do with the Chavya, the serpent. Now, of course, we know that the serpent's going to have a role to play in this story. And so perhaps if there's a connection of the name Eve to serpent, it has to pick up on that narrative strand. But we don't know for sure uh, what the answer might be. All right, last question, and then we'll get into some more details. Uh, Now, I've talked about this in Theology Matters recently, so if you were there, you know the answer, but not all of you were there, so this might still be a new question for some of you. What type of fruit did the serpent tempt Adam and Eve with? What did they eat? What did the serpent present? What did Eve consider and then give to Adam? What was it? What type of fruit? An apple, obviously, right? How many people think apple? Some of you think it's not apple. Do you all remember why it's not apple? Well, one, the text doesn't say that it's an apple, so that's one thing. But where do we get the idea of an apple? Because any picture you see, my son has these little apple juices that's called Garden of Eden apple juice. So there's this cultural idea that it's an apple that they ate. So where do we get that? Well, I'm glad you asked. The Latin noun for apple is malum. But the Latin adjective for evil is malice. So there's this little play on words that develop in the Latin translation of the Old Testament, in the old Catholic tradition, so that, uh, that, that malice came into the world when Adam and Eve ate the malum. So it's just a play on words. There's no actual indication that they ate apples. In fact, in the rabbinic tradition, there was actually many other ideas about what they ate. Some, uh, some uh, Jewish interpretations speculate that it was grapes, 
Why would that make sense? Because maybe it led to drunkenness, if the grapes are really old and fermented, I guess. I usually try to discard my grapes before they get to the point of intoxication, but that's just a practice in my home. Uh, other people have said figs. Any, any reason why that would make sense? That's right. Remember when they notice that they're naked after their eyes have been opened? They make clothes out of fig leaves, so maybe they do that because they just ate the fig fruit, perhaps. And then finally, another uh, suggestion in, in the Jewish tradition is, is that uh, they ate wheat, which is odd because we don't think of wheat as a, as a, uh, as a fruit. But in, in uh, Hebrew, chata, which is wheat, sounds just like the word for sin, chata. They're spelled differently but they're said the same. So in the Hebrew, in the Jewish tradition, uh, sin, chata, entered because Adam and Eve ate the chata, the wheat. So all of these kind of fascinating little plays on words that work their way into our memories and, and knowledge of this story, none of which, in this case, are actually in the text. So I'm going to let you grade yourselves about how well you did. There will be opportunities for bonus and makeup quizzes. Uh, see me after class. So... Now, though, let's move to the, to the proper part of the lesson, and I want to begin looking at some of the characterizations of Adam and Eve in chapters uh, 2 and 3 of the book of Genesis. Uh, we can't do everything extensively, so I'm going to move through episode by episode, reading selectively what I think are some of the high points of the story and its meaning. Let's begin with the creation of Adam. We must keep in mind here as we get started that in the Genesis, in the opening book of the Bible, there are actually two creation stories. Many of you know this, of course. There's, there's a creation story in Genesis 1-1 through 2-4, and then there's a second creation story in Genesis 2-4 through the end of chapter 3. And we encounter Adam and Eve as we know them, as named characters, not in the first creation story, but in the second and there are some important differences between those two creation stories. And one of those differences has to do uh, with the creation. This is a little creaky over here, so I'm going to move down. Um, I think Tony did this in the sermon as well. I saw him. Uh, it, was very, it was very, very subtle and eloquent how you did. I actually thought it was a movement of the sermon, like the spirit was. Anyway. Um, so here's how the second creation account begins. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no plant of the field was yet in the earth and no herb of the field had yet sprung up, then the Lord God formed man, in Hebrew that's the word Adam, or Ha-Adam, from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now, if you were listening to uh, Tony's sermon, hopefully if you were here and listening, ideally you would do the both, uh, you would know that Tony talked a little bit about the presence of the spirit in the first creation account hovering over the waters and bringing life out of the formless void of creation. But here again we have spirit uh, in the sense that this breath of life is the same word. It's the spirit of life. So the spirit is there in both creation accounts as this integral component of, of bringing life out of lifelessness. As you read this account, and just from your memory of Genesis 1, what's different? How does this sound different than how God creates humanity in the first creation account? So the seek in what way, Florida? That's exactly right. Yeah, or at least there's some things created before uh, man here, but there's some things not yet created. So it seems like the creation of Adam kind of happens midway through creation, whereas in Genesis 1, it's the culminating mark. So that, that's one important difference. What else is different? 
Any other differences? Seminary students, you can participate. <laughs> Rick. Yeah, or at least there's no clear delineation of days. What day is this? Are we in the third day? There's, no, there's not any care to kind of delineate, well, this happened in this day, and this happened in that day, and this happened in that day. This seems to be a little more freeform uh, than it is in creation one. There's one other, actually there's a number of other differences, but one other important difference is that here the man is created first. And in Genesis 1, that doesn't happen. It's just humanity, man and woman, both in the image of God, seem to be created at the same time. But here in this second creation account, Adam does seem to be created before Eve. Now, a further detail stands out about the nature of this creation, but again, uh, it's only a little bit more evident in the Hebrew. Let's take a closer look at this verse. Then the Lord God formed man, Adam, from the dust of the ground, Adama, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. In Hebrew, the personal name for Adam, Ha'adam, can be translated as man, as is, is in fact in the case in this verse. Um, but also closely related here, and important to note, is that the word for man, Adam, is basically the same form as the word for ground, Adama. So in Hebrew here, again, these plays on words. In, uh, English masks a wonderful pun. In Hebrew, God creates Adam from the Adama, an earthling from the earth, or if you're a farmer, a human from the hummus. God in this image here is a potter who literally gets his hands dirty in the work of creation. This is very different in the creation, first creation account where God just speaks forth creation. God seems more distant. God creates by divine speech. But here, God is present. God is a potter or a farmer, literally getting his hands dirty in the soil to bring about the creation of, of uh, Adam. Uh, this also, as a side note, highlights, of course, the intimate connection that humanity has to the earth. Humans, the, Ad the Adam, are created out of the Adamah. It's a point uh, that emphasizes that we are all global citizens and as a result have a responsibility to care about things in the earth and care about ecology and the world and, and its health and so on and so forth, a question that's increasingly pressing in our own time. Now, jumping ahead a few verses, um, we get the first commandment. Um, the first commandment reads like this in the creation account. The Lord says, um, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to till it and to keep it, to till it and to keep it. How do you normally think of the Garden of Eden? What is it like? It's lush, right? There's fruit. It's evergreen. It's well watered. Do you have to do a lot of work in the, uh, in the Garden of Eden? No, we normally think you're just in this paradise, and bam, fruit just pops up on the tree for you to eat. That's our vision of the Garden of Eden, but it's actually not the Bible's vision of the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden is a garden like any garden, and like any garden, it requires work. It requires the humans to till it and to keep it. Now, granted, this is not, uh, this is very productive work. It's work that leads to fruitfulness, but, the, but humanity is called to work nevertheless. So it's wrong to say, as it often is said, that work is the result of the fall. That's simply not the case in the biblical narrative. From the very beginning, humanity was meant to work the garden. Now, you might say the work changes after the fall, but it doesn't start because of the fall. Uh, and in fact, this would have been uh, 
a very, very common way of seeing things. Now, there's a second commandment that follows not long after, and we'll return to that in a moment. But first, we have to deal with the creation of the other person in the first couple, the creation of Eve. And you all know how this story goes. What was Eve created out of? But why? Yeah, so out of the side, really. Literally, it's just the side. that We've understood it as a rib. But why was Eve created out of the side? Well, not, not why out of the side, but why was Eve later created? Bless you. What is, sorry, getting a couple? A companion. So, so what's interesting, that's right. So, so God looks at creation. This is, and this is very, very different than in creation one. God looks at creation and says it was all good. But after the creation of Adam... In the second creation account, God steps back and says, it's not all good. It's not all good, or at least it's not all good quite yet. It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper, and I'm going to say more about that word in just a second. I will make him a helper as his partner. Now, what happens next is, is not the creation of Eve. What happens immediately after God says, ah, this isn't good, I need to create a helper? What, is he, what does God create? It's not an iPhone. Animals, right? God creates all types of animals, again, from the ground. And he, he leads them before Adam, uh, the donkeys, the cows, the giraffes, the lions, the beaver, the dog, and so on and so forth. But none of them qualified as a suitable companion for Adam, whatever that means. None of them qualified. Uh, a dog might be man's best friend, but in this case, it wasn't quite enough to complete creation. So it's then that God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept, and then he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with its flesh. And here there's this wonderful um, image here, an old Greek image of, of Eve literally coming out of, as a full-grown person, Eve coming out of... Hmm. All right. Um... Yeah, so uh, we'll maybe try to work on that. But, uh, but so Eve in that picture, as you can see in this picture, Eve is literally coming out of the side of Adam as this fully grown person. I don't know if, I can't think of how I imagined it actually happening. But in this case, Eve is, is fully enfleshed as she emerges out of Adam's side. Now, there are three things to note about this. Ah, thank you so much. That's awesome. Um, there are three curious parts of the story. Maybe there are more than three curious parts of the story, but there are at least three. First, how do we square this account with the story that we get in Genesis 1? So in Genesis 1, as I said, Adam and Eve are created at the same time, but here they're created sequentially. How are we to, to, to merge those two together? Are we to merge those two together? Well, there's two different options. A scholarly option is that you just read these as two separate creation accounts. There are two versions of how it all happened. There's version one in Genesis one, and there's version two in Genesis two and three. In one, they're created at the same time. In the other, they were created sequentially. That's one valid way of seeing things. These are two separate stories, and, and the ancient readers of scripture were okay with that. They weren't bothered by the inconsistency. They said, yeah, that's how it was. There were two stories, and that's why we find both stories in our canon. That's a valid way of seeing things. But not everyone reads the Bible as a, as a scholar would, and in fact, most readers try to combine these stories or try to say, well, how do they actually make sense as being one unified story? And one fascinating way that this has happened in the Jewish tradition is this. One Jewish legend says 
that, yes, in Genesis 1, uh, a man and a woman were created, and it was Adam and not Eve, but Lilith. Did you know that Adam had two wives? Well, in this Jewish legend, that's exactly what happened. In Genesis 1, God creates Adam and Lilith equally, and Lilith really wants to live into the equality of them being created together, but that doesn't go over well with Adam. And you know what? Adam gets rid of Lilith. Lilith is driven out of the garden, and then Genesis 2 and 3 comes along, and what happens? Adam creates, or excuse me, God creates Eve, Adam's second wife. And this second wife is comfortable with being subservient. Now, we're not, I'm not, let me just, as a disclaimer, I'm not prescribing this theology. I'm simply saying what the Jewish tradition, one reading in the Jewish tradition of how you, you blend these two stories together. It's a fascinating tale. None of it is biblical in the sense that there's no evidence for this in the scripture itself. Although the, these, these elaborate traditions develop where Lilith is driven out of the garden. She, um, she, she, she becomes to be associated with, with demons and sudden infant death, death syndrome. And even in art, she becomes very fascinating. You can see here um, in the image on the far left, I don't really, oh, there we go. This image on the far left, there's a serpent uh, snaked around her. Well, the image on the right is from the Sistine Chapel. And this figure over here, you can tell it's half human, half snake. For Michelangelo, that's Lilith. There's this tradition that develops that, in fact, it's Lilith who tempts Adam and Eve to eat of the fruit, not a serpent, although Michelangelo nicely blends the imagery of this woman with that of a snake. Now, second, uh, and to the point, what about this language of helper? What do you think of when you think of a helper? Is that, is that an equal term? Most of you are shaking your heads no. I, had, I was out mowing the lawn yesterday, and Leo was running around, uh, and he was picking up some, some sticks on the ground, although I usually just mow over them, but he was picking them up, and I said, I, I remember I said to him, you know, thank you for being daddy's little helper. Now, when I say daddy's little helper, I don't mean that we teamed up together and 50-50 took care of the lawn problem at my house. No, he was my little helper. He, he kind of did some side jobs as I did the important work of mowing the lawn. Um, that's how we typically think of helper. And so the question is, is that, is that the sense of the text? Is that what helper means here uh, in, the, in the Hebrew? Does it imply some sort of subordinate role, as is often is the case? Well, not exactly. Although, let me step back. Um, in 1 in, uh, in in Timothy, there's this odd reading of the Genesis 2 account. And the author says, I, I permit no woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She is to keep silent, for Adam was formed first and then Eve. Now, I'm also not prescribing uh, this theology, and this is a sort of text that I deal with in my text of terror class that I teach at Columbia Theological Seminary and here in Theology Matters. Uh, but notice the curious reading. It's saying because Eve was created second, that is, as a helper, she, there are implications for societal roles. Now, we would reject this, I think, in many, many, many ways, but it comes out of this curious theological reading of the story of Genesis. Unfortunately, I would argue that it's something of a misreading. For in Hebrew, Oops, let me go back. Uh, for in Hebrew, the word used for helper, etzer, does not necessarily imply subordination. In fact, the person most often called an etzer is God. Is God. So if anything, 
in the Hebrew scripture, Atzer uh, uh, implies a superior, not an inferior role. So whatever is going on with 1 Timothy, I'll have to leave to my New Testament colleagues, but it clearly seems to be a misreading of what the Hebrew of the Old Testament is actually saying. So let me pause you. We have a couple other points to do, but let me pause at this point to see if there are any uh, questions or interaction on this point that you might want to bring up. Because after this, we're moving to the temptation. Anything so far? So, uh, of um, the one about Lilith? I don't, I don't think that's where the Jewish tradition goes. Um, it's just kind of this legendary uh, idea about how, how, you, how you could square Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 together. Yeah. Now, of course, many of the patriarchs do have, have more than one wife, so that, that, that does complicate the story uh, of what happens. But that, that, will be for, that will be for the Abraham and Sarah lecture. So come back two weeks from now, and we'll deal with that question. <laughs> Tim. Probably the Genesis 2 and 3 is the older narrative. And, and one thought, um, because you could read it in, in a way that's less favorable to women. That's not my particular reading. But one thought is that it, 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 this story, the second story of Adam and Eve, came about during the height of the uh, uh, Israelite monarchy. And it's a time, if you think back to the stories of David and of Solomon. David, uh, his affair with Bathsheba, Solomon, his 300 wives and 700 porcupines, and so on and so forth. Um, Oh, concubines, sorry. Um, uh, so, in, so if you read in the backdrop of those stories, you might hear echoes in Genesis 2 of a warning about, uh, about man's role with women. Now, this is one theory of it. The, the, um, Genesis 1 probably comes after that. In fact, Genesis 1 might be kind of a corrective to Genesis 2 in, insofar as it, it gives a different picture of creation, one in which there is, there is more of an, an equal sense of man and woman. Was there any other? Yeah, please. Yeah. Yes. It's not in my notes. I'm going to have to look it up for you. It, it, there is no doubt. I just don't know it. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I know where to look for it. <laughs> yeah, Cliff. Yeah. How do you draw upon these, story, these stories? Yeah, well, I, I think that there would be a longer answer to that. But my short answer is, um, I think it's instructive that there are two accounts. And that uh, the ancient readers of scripture were absolutely fine with the fact that there were two accounts. I think in, in modern theological discourse, we want to always boil an answer down to one thing. We want it to be one way. There's one thing the Bible says about creation. But in fact, there's more than one thing the Bible says about creation. And those, those multiple stories, in fact, there's more than just two stories. Uh, there's stories of creation in the Psalms. There's stories of creation in Proverbs 8. There might even be stories of creation in the book of Job. So there's actually many stories of creation. They all try to give us a different insight, a different theological truth about what's happening uh, in the creation account. And then on that score, I think Genesis 2 and 3 is trying to give us a different message. And it has more to do, I think, uh, as opposed to the Genesis 1 account, about what does it look like, uh, you might think of it this way, Genesis 1 has a lot to do, 
I don't want to put it that way. I, I, sorry, I'm that, this is what I get for answering off the cuff. Um, I think Genesis 2 and 3 highlights some problems of temptation and knowledge and uh, humanity's relationship with God in ways that are only implicit in Genesis 1. So it begins to help us to have a frame for understanding why is it, how is it, that we live east of Eden. And I think theologically, for me, that's one of the great takeaways of this story, is that we are all people living east of Eden. We're all living east of that place we were created for. And so in some ways, we can understand the whole of the call of the gospel as one that leads us back to Eden. And in fact, it's not surprising that in the very last chapters of the book of Revelation, the last book of the New Testament, we once again find garden imagery. We find imagery that resonates strongly with the imagery of Genesis 1 through 3. And I think that's part of the narrative arc of the Bible as a whole, that it's always bringing us back to a right relationship, not only with one another, but with God. So that, that's a short, maybe that wasn't so short, that's a medium answer to your question, but I was happy to, to take that up. Um, yes? Yes? Oh, yeah, the good question. We don't know that she had blonde hair. In fact, we probably know that she didn't exist. Uh, but, but these are kind of the artistic musings of later interpreters. I knew the little thing would, would catch a lot of attention. Um, let me move on. I know there's other things to talk about. I want to move on and talk a little bit about the temptation in this last 10 minutes or so. We know from Genesis 2 that the Lord forbade Adam to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. But there are a lot of questions here, of course. Why plant a tree in the garden that couldn't be eaten? Isn't that like me putting a plate of donuts in the middle of the aisle and expecting no one to have a donut? I would have a donut if there were donuts in the middle of the aisle and I said don't eat of them. There's a lot of odd questions here. Why is there this uh, restriction on a tree of knowledge of good and evil when it seems that knowledge of good and evil are in fact prized? invalued in later parts of scripture. Questions upon questions in Genesis 2. Um, but there also are, are a number of cultural assumptions, namely that the temptation, uh, this temptation story, is primarily about Eve tempting Adam. That is part of a cultural understanding. It kind of weaves its way into funny things that people say. This is from the Bible according to kids. The first commandment was when Eve told Adam to eat the apple. No, I don't think that's exactly right. That's not the first commandment in the Decalogue, but according to kids, it is. Or I found this cartoon uh, character uh, thing here, Adam. At least my wife could not complain that I never listened to her. Eve, I married what used to be the perfect man. Uh, these are the epithets for their stones. Now, all of these are, are I mean, in a humorous way. Um, but, but there is this, uh, I think, misunderstanding that somehow it was Eve that seduced Adam into eating the apple. And in fact, in this image here from Titian, it might even be thought that Adam is trying to push Eve back from taking of the fruit. It's not, it's a, it, the, the gesture is ambiguous, uh, but Adam might be seen as trying to push her back, as if Adam was kind of knew what was right, and somehow Eve tempted him to do what was wrong. Of course, this is not the story that we find in Genesis 3, because Adam was there all along. Adam hears everything that happens between the serpent and the woman, and he concedes and is silent. Let's look at the dialogue here. The serpent begins the dialogue. You remember how this go, goes. The serpent says, did God say you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? Is that what God said? What did God say? You should not eat from that tree, that one tree. So notice how the serpent twists God's word 
did God say you shouldn't eat from any tree in the garden? Because that would seem ridiculous. The serpent is trying to hook her it's by twisting God's word. There might be a lot uh, to be said about contemporary theological practice and that sort of thing. But nevertheless, uh, look at Eve's response. We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. So, so Eve's correcting the serpent, right? She says, no, 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 that's not what God said. God said, we may eat of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden. Here she means the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So Eve is kind of correcting the serpent, right? So she's on, on good ground here. Um, but then she adds something. This is what's very interesting. Then she says, nor shall you touch it or you shall die. Now, did God say you shall not touch the tree or the fruit of the tree of the uh, knowledge of good and evil? No, God did not say that. So what's Eve doing in adding this line here? I don't know. Is, is this kind of an added defense? Is she saying, look, we shouldn't eat it, so then we shouldn't even touch it. Let's keep this forbidden thing at an arm's length. I'm not sure if that's what she's doing, but some scholars have speculated that in this role, Eve is functioning as the first theologian. She's functioning as the first uh, commentator on scripture. She knows what God said, and now she's trying to unpack what that means and what its implications are for actual life. Yes, God said don't eat the fruit, but theologically, we should probably not even touch it because it's in the touching of it that leads to the eating of it. I guess you could maybe eat it without touching it, you know, if you just put your head up just right. But that's a little bit harder. So I think she's trying to, to do some practical theology here. What does it mean to follow God's command? Well, in either case, you know what happens next. Eve sees that the tree was good for food and was a delight to the eyes and would make one wise. So she took of its fruit and she ate it. She took of its fruit and ate it. The result, of course, was that their eyes were opened and they recognized that they were naked. Here again, uh, there's a tasty play on words, pardon the pun, but there's a tasty play on words. And they open, then the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked. In Hebrew, it's erumim. And they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. But earlier in the same chapter, the serpent is, called, is said to be more crafty, arum, than any of the wild animals. So in the nakedness of humanity in light of their fall echoes the craftiness of the serpent. Those words aren't related at all in English. But in Hebrew, naked, erumim, and crafty, arum, are very, very close in connection. So I think here again the author shows this playfulness of wanting uh, to draw these connections together to highlight the theological points. Okay. Let me go to the result, uh, or I'm going to call it the denial in Christian theology, a lot of focus is placed on the resulting curses that God gives on the serpent, and then on the woman, and then on Adam. But, but what I find more interesting, and I think more instructive, is how Adam and Eve respond when God catches wind that they've eaten of the fruit. This is the point that seems more relevant to my life and, and to the Christian life of discipleship. Um, Adam, or God basically discovers what's happened and says, uh, where are you, Adam? And Adam hides. And then God kind of finds him and, and says, you know, what, what's going on here? And this is what the man says. The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Notice how Adam here is passing the blame. Not just passing the blame to Eve. 
she gave me the fruit. But Adam is actually blaming God. You're the one who gave me the woman, and she's the one who gave me the fruit, and that's why I did it. Not much of a confession, I would say. So, so Adam is really trying to shift the blame. Well, Eve does something similar, though in her own way. When God questions Eve about it, this is what Eve says. The serpent tricked me. By the way, God, you created the serpent. And remember you said all of creation was good? Well, the serpent that you created, that I'm adding that in, uh, tricked me and I ate. So do Adam and Eve confess at all? Is there any admission of guilt? We all know if you're married or even just have relationships that the worst apologies start with something about the other person. Apologies start with I statements, and neither Adam nor Eve begin the response to God with an I statement. And I wonder, and here I'm speculating, but I wonder, is the real problem of the fall the lack of confession? Is the real issue here that Adam and Eve don't fess up to what they've done? Friends, people in scripture do far worse than eating of a piece of fruit. In fact, the very next chapter, which we'll talk about next week, Cain and Abel, someone, there's, there's fratricide. A brother kills a brother. There are worse sins than eating the fruit. The question is, will we own up to those sins? I think this perhaps is one of the, the great failings of Adam and Eve, is not the original temptation, but in fact, uh, the fact that they never come clean with God about the issue. All right, we just have a couple minutes left. Uh, I'm going to skip a few things. As you know, Adam and Eve then are driven out of the Garden of Eden. They live, uh, they live forever east of Eden. God places this cherub or cherubim, this, this angel of sorts, with a sword flaming and turning to and fro to guard the way of the tree of life. Um, so that Adam and Eve are kicked out, and the rest of life happens east of Eden. Um, that was a connection I was going to make with the book of Joshua, but we're going to skip that. I want to say just a word about the afterlife, about what happens with these stories in the, in the hands of later readers. And here will be very, very quick. As I mentioned at the outside, Adam and Eve are given surprisingly little attention throughout the rest of the Old Testament. But they, have, but they continue to become a point of fascination, fascination with later readers. One such text, or one example, are these non-biblical Jewish literature. So things written by faithful Jews that did not end up in the canon of our Bible. There are things called the Apocalypse of Moses and the life of Adam and Eve that kind of fill in the gaps about Adam and Eve. They tell the story of what happened to Adam and Eve after they were kicked out of the garden. So at the very point the Bible stops talking about Adam and Eve, these stories pick up. And they tell these fascinating, fascinating things, including about... Um, their life outside of paradise, the death of Abel, the birth of Seth, how Adam repents, and how through the prayers of the angel, Adam is pardoned and receives the promise of eternal life from God. So, so in these stories, Adam is, is redeemed from the fall. Uh, but what both of these stories do, and what's very interesting, is that they both place the blame on Eve. In these stories, as they retell what happened in the garden, Adam is not present. In fact, it goes, at, it goes uh, to say that Adam was very, very far away when the serpent first met Eve. So these sources are trying to clean up Adam, and in a sense, they're throwing Eve under the bus. In fact, in one story, Eve talks to her son, Seth, and is trying to give him some motherly advice. And in her advice, she actually admits that she was the one who led Adam astray. Now, we must remember 
that none of this is in the biblical tale. And in fact, in the biblical tale, Adam is there all along. So these stories are trying to reimagine the, uh, the legend of Adam and Eve, the story of Adam and Eve, in a way that shifts blame from Adam onto Eve. It's not the case in the original stories, but there is this tradition that happens. Um, the last thing I'll mention, sorry, I'm rushing through here. The last thing I'll mention is that, uh, particularly in Catholic theology, Mary, or Eve, gets connected to Mary. And in fact, Mary is considered a second Eve, an Eve that somehow, uh, Mary somehow redeems uh, the the sin of Eve. Uh, Jerome in the fourth century calls, says this, death by Eve, life by Mary. Just as uh, sin entered the world through Eve, so too did salvation enter the world through Mary. This is fascinating connection. Um, what am I going to say? Oh, the rain, uh, let me say this. Uh, Eve was cursed with a pain in childbirth, but legend has it that Mary gave birth to Jesus without pain. So there's all these ways in which there's some, these figures are kind of reversals of one another. And the way this gets really highlighted is in the Annunciation scene. When the uh, angel Gabriel visits Mary to, to tell her that she uh, is pregnant will give birth to Jesus, the angel says, uh, greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. Well, there's one last play of words, and I'll get you out of here on this. In Latin, the word for greeting is Ave, as in the Ave Maria. That's greeting Mary, Ave Maria. Well, in Latin, Eve's name is Eva. So what do you, oops, let me go back. What do you notice about Eva and Ave? They're, they're reverse spellings. So this informs a theology, a Catholic theology, that somehow the life and work of Mary reverses the life of, and work of Eve. And we know that through this play on words in Ave or Ave Maria. This is just one of many fascinating examples of how these figures have taken on a life of their own beyond the pages of Genesis 2 and 3. They capture our imaginations and inform our theologies. And so maybe the invitation then for us today is to look back on these ancient stories, to listen again, and to contemplate what truths they might have for us today. Thank you so much uh, for being here and bearing with some of our technical issues.